Episode 29, Hey Love Podcast. I just thought there was a need, so let's just bring them in here, throw them into the group, and we'll parent them the same way we have our biological children. Oh. And, um, you know, they turned out pretty good, so we're, we're good to go. And, you know, that didn't work. That, that real quick, we realized that didn't work. Welcome to Hey Love, engaging the introverted woman in soul care, spirituality, and social spaces. Here, it's all about relationships. Hey love, so glad you're here with me today. I'm your host, Carthy Masters. We're going to be talking with a friend about attaching with kids from hard places and how learning to do this can really affect all your relationships. This is part one of a two-part interview. So whether you teach Sunday school or third grade or if you're ever around anyone's kids ever or if you have homegrown kids of your own or have adopted or have ever dreamed of having kids in the future by either method or if you have friends of any age. Basically, if you're a human being with a pulse, you will get a lot from this conversation. Blair and I first started talking about adopting even before we got engaged. When I first shared my dream with him, as I told you, we had a pretty short window of time between our first date and our wedding a whole five months later. I remember telling Blair back in 92, I'm going to adopt a house full of little girls from India. He got the message pretty quick that it was pretty much a non-negotiable. To tell you the truth, I was kind of hoping it would scare him off just because I was afraid of commitment, but he didn't leave. Instead, he proposed on our third date, which is one reason I sometimes look around and say, you know what, I am surrounded by a bunch of crazy people. Needless to say, our first year of marriage was nothing but a hot place, and we thought, what better time to start having kids? We had one using conventional means, then started our adoption paperwork a little bit later. We had so many issues to work through. It was like God brought up a whole new layer with each new kid. So in 1999, we started down what we fondly call our adoption journey. After bringing our Davy home, we quickly realized that kids from hard places had needs and problems no textbook could ever touch. And counselors didn't know quite what to do with them yet. None of us knew what to do to help the child or to keep the parents from losing their minds. So we asked pastors and friends for prayer, and several people pointed us in the direction of Show Hope. Now, we were familiar with Show Hope. We attended church for 13 years with the Coleys, Dan and Terry, and the Chapmans, who were Stephen and Mary Beth. We had watched them help hundreds of families by then with grants for their adoptions over the years. We were one of those first families to receive a grant, and we were so excited to hear that Show Hope had been researching ways to help families like us, and we're now offering follow-up care. Thank God was all we could say. Terry and Dan have been working closely with the Chapmans to bring hope and practical solutions to adoptive families all over the globe. The Coleys have a whole houseful of kids themselves. They've adopted kids, they have homegrown biological kids, and they had fostered upwards of 50 different kids through the state of Tennessee. 
We watched all this going down as it was happening. It was right before our eyes. I remember every few weeks, I'd see them with a new baby in their arms, and I'd think, who are these people? This is one remarkable family, and we have been so thankful for their influence and mentoring in our lives. Blair and I look at each other all the time and say, you know, we thought we were getting help for our kids, but really, it was for us. Show Hope is a huge institution now with care centers on the other side of the world. We're going to hear more about what they're doing in a minute. But first, you got to know, in their humble beginnings, they asked a certain Indian girl to speak at their first fundraiser dinner, which was going to be held in the Chapman's barn. The year was 2003, and we had just gotten our referral. So I was invited to share our story for 20 minutes. And then when I got there, I saw on this beautiful printed program that I was allotted 15 minutes. And then the MC, he was a famous sports announcer. You would probably know his name, but I can't remember. Anyway, he when he introduced me, he said, you have five minutes. So I was so nervous. You got to know, because there were the Chapmans sitting right in front and all these famous influential people. And I've always had a way of sort of opening my mouth and inserting my foot fully whenever I'm around famous people. Then I went completely out of my mind because just as I was stepping onto the platform, I saw the photo of our little girl that we were about to bring home from India, little Davy. She was so cute. Her photo was blown up on the big screen and I lost it. So when it was all said and done, I think I ended up speaking for about half an hour. I don't know. It was awful. I was a complete mess. I have no idea what I said. I couldn't read my notes because they were all just a big blur. It was Mary Beth's birthday, so it was really sweet, and Terry had been so encouraging and helpful. And then there was my daughter, Tabi's picture, big as life. I was ruined for the entire night. I remember asking somebody if they had a tissue, and this sweet woman ran up to the stage and handed me a napkin with this wax coating on it. This was a really nice sit-down dinner, so the sheen rendered the napkin pretty much useless, so I ended up using my sleeve. I was sniffling and snorting into the microphone. I did basically everything you would see in an article entitled, What Not to Do When You're Speaking to a Crowd. So when I finally stumbled off the stage, I saw the clock, and I was so embarrassed. It was a massive fail. Oh, my goodness. Good times. But the Show Hope people were so gracious. They still gave us a grant. And they, especially Terry and Mary Beth, helped us all along the way, every step of the way. For a type B creative like me, it was really overwhelming to keep up with all the paperwork. You know, if you've even approached adoption, there are mounds and mounds of paperwork. When God was handing out different gifts, I'm not sure where I was when he got to the organizational skills department. I think I'd slipped off the conveyor belt at that point for a second or something. So Terry and Mary Beth kept me on top of it all. You'll need this paper next, they would tell me. You can probably expect to be traveling in March. And they were right. I felt so lost. Did I mention I'm not especially bent toward organization? But these two women are rock stars at this stuff. 
I don't know how we would have ever been ready when we got the call if it weren't for Terry, Mary Beth, and my other type A Martha friends. I'll tell you more about Davy's homecoming in another episode. She is such an inspiration to me. Her interview is going to be coming up soon. You're going to love hearing from her. Once Blair and I started really getting a hold of this material that Dan and Terry passed on through their years of trial and error and research and finally hitting the nail on the head with the Karen Purvis material, you know what? It changed our relationships, all of our relationships. For me, it wasn't just about my parenting, which was totally radicalized. I was able to finally start giving them the nurture they so desperately needed for their healing. But it also changed our marriage and even my friendships, the way I talk to my parents, um, my kids' teachers, everybody in my path was affected by this. I guess mainly the attachment system we're talking about today, TBRI or trust-based relational intervention, helps you look at the need or the desire or the fear behind the behavior and have compassion on people. Because really, aren't we all from hard places somehow? It's really all about communicating with grace to others. And it's absolutely revolutionized my relationships, I'm telling you. And I know that the change will do you good. In this episode of Hey Love, we're going to have the pleasure of talking with Terry. I'm so honored to have her here, one of my biggest heroes to whom I will be forever indebted. She's going to explain to us what motivated her heart to care for children from hard places. Here's Terry Coley. 35 to 40 years ago, we married, we just celebrated our 40th anniversary, and you know, we you? started doing foster care the second year we were married with um, some kids from the Tennessee Baptist Children's Home. That was our first introduction, and um, then there was a place called the Girls Ranch that was in um, Franklin hmm. that we also, they were in our youth group at church, and that's how we got involved with these kids that didn't wow. have families, and hmm. we would, you know, randomly bring them into our home and just love on them for the weekend or just... Aww. You know, they were in our Sunday school class that we taught. So that's kind of where we began that process. Um, And through that, I had no idea what I didn't know and didn't even learn any time for several years. Um, Then we began involved after we had our four children, biological children. We, um, We started doing foster care for a couple of agencies in town with newborns. Um, and would keep them from the time they were born until they were placed into their families and sometimes placed back with their birth mothers. I worked with birth mothers. I worked with, um, so we had some birth mothers live with us um, mm-hmm. through the pregnancy and then even after, you know, the recovery. Um, so I worked with them and I feel like God just gave me, um, I think he gave my heart a, an understanding of where they were walking and how that process was and, a, and such a respect for what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and to see their desire to find the right home, the right family mm-hmm. for that baby that they were carrying. Um, and uh, so then after that, we ended up being involved. Uh, we did that for several years. I think we kept 50 or so kids during those years. And wow. we ended up deciding that, um, you know, if we were very much, you know, against abortion. So we decided, okay, if we're going to be against abortion, I guess maybe that's where we started with the foster care. Even if you're going to be against something, then you have to be for something. So, so to be for something, that's where we kind of became involved with the, with the foster care. And then we saw the need 
especially of kids that were of, um, you know, some older kids or mixed-race kids or, you know, the minority children. Are they considered um, still special needs like ours You know, was? I don't think they are considered special needs anymore. Thank you very much for them not being special <laughs> needs because, you know what, I will say this. I've learned through the years that every adopted child is, is special, special needs, needs. Absolutely. Because right. there's loss. For there yeah. to be adoption, there is a loss. And yes. that heart is... Is, is, you know, there's a hole in their heart. And, mm. you know, can it be filled? Yes, of course it can be filled. I mean, God puts families into their, um, into their lives that bring healing to them. But the bottom line is there's still a scar. There's mm-hmm. always a scar mm-hmm. for that, um, for and that child. And the love of two parents is not enough. The like love of learned. two parents is, is mm-hmm. not enough. It's, it's, it certainly is such a blessing to that child's life. Yeah. I got to interject something here. The love of two parents is a good thing. When we say it's not enough, what we're trying to say is this. We need help from the outside. We need training, equipping. We need the Holy Spirit to teach us. We need other parents who have walked down that road. Like I said, if it weren't for Dan and Terry, we don't know how we would have made it those first few years. Terry's about to tell us about a mistake that adoptive parents make. Uh, It sounds so basic, but I did it too. That parent is me. When we first brought our daughter home from India, we made so many mistakes. And one of the many redos we had to ask her for was in our thinking about her life beginning the day we all flew back home to the U.S. on a big, big plane from India. So whether you've brought home an older child like we did or whether you were there in the hospital the day your child was a newborn, it it's still important to acknowledge and understand and respect that life for your child started before you ever entered the picture. You may not be as slow-brained as I was, but even if you were, there's hope for you. Let's get back to the interview because I want you to hear more about that. And I think, too, I really think about the, the kids whose parents, the adoptive parents, do not really want to go back to, they want to believe that that child's life started the day they came into mm-hmm. their home. And even if you cut that umbilical cord, that child's life had nine months in utero that usually is um, a very stressful utero. Mm-hmm. It could be drugs and alcohol related. There's no telling what kind of trauma was experienced. So their brain formed. Mm-hmm you know, in trauma, in a traumatic situation. So they are born on high alert, and then they're taken away from everything they've known and placed with another family. Not that that's not the plan, and that's a good plan, and this family loves this child. But at different times, that child is going to revisit, yeah. the, you know, that loss. Absolutely. And wonder, who did I look like? What was the situation? Huh. Why didn't they want me? Mm. You know, that's a big question, and it's not always that they didn't want you. Many times it is the fact that they were trying to give you something that they couldn't give you. But that doesn't make it any easier for them to wonder about what it would have been like. What did my mom look like? My dad look like? What did, you know, do I have siblings that I don't know, you Mm -hmm. know, biological siblings? Not that even they're unhappy in the home where they are, Mm -hmm. but it's just a matter of wondering. And, mm-hmm. and you know, the attachment process, and I, so right now we're really talking about kids from birth, that attachment process is, um, you know, they can bond quickly. They've got, you know, their needs are met, unlike the child who's been, 
you know, from home to home to home or in an orphanage setting that doesn't develop an attachment bond, um, you know, whose needs are not met, who's, who cries and nobody comes, so they, mm. they end up not having a voice. They quit crying because nobody comes, and when they get hurt, nobody comes. So when they experience, when we see them experience pain in our homes, we think, well, they're not even crying. It's because their crying never got them anything in the past, yeah. so that's what they learned. They, they didn't, turned it off. Yeah, they turned it off, oh. which um, is so sad, but mm-hmm. as as adoptive parents, we need to learn these things and we right. need to understand that you rescue the child right. immediate, immediately when you get them in your hands or when yeah. you, you walk out of that orphanage with them. But that is just the beginning because the healing of that child, if you're not able to go to the mm. hard pain yeah. that they have experienced Which and is the a trauma, long journey. if you can't go there with them, then they can't heal. And to give hope to the ones who have adopted and are, you know, maybe just now starting the struggle, there's hope. Exactly. There's always hope. It's never too late. Have come through for us, thank God, because the Chapmans and you got together. And tell us how you got a hold of this connected child material. Well, actually, um, you know, I was at a really bad place when I got a hold of that child. It was in 2007. And I had actually told Mary Beth that I couldn't do um, I couldn't do grants anymore if we weren't going to figure some way to support our families and educate them so that when the children come home, they they have some that's great some way of understanding as best as possible where Thank they've you. been. Thank um, you. <laughs> so she chatted and she, Steve challenged my husband Dan and I to <laughs> research this, and I had researched several books and read and just been to many counselors and talked with people and you know nobody really understood no. what I was experiencing or had experienced yeah. what I was feeling at this point we had several adopted children and one that was actually even out of the home at that time hmm. because we didn't know what else to do and he ended up in residential treatment center and yeah. um, I wished I had known when I got him what I knew what wow. I know now because mm. I think things could have looked different for him my expectations for him could have been different mm. or our expectations for him could have been different mm-hmm. but um, so we researched and Dan went and spoke at a conference once and he I remember him he flew home walked in the front door and handed me this book and said I think God brought you a book on adoption I want you to you know I think you might would like to read this and another book um, I literally, he handed me the book and, you know, I'd been at home with the kids for a while by myself, so, you know, I probably wasn't in the best of of places, but I threw the book at him, hit him in the head, (laughs) I mean, you know, said something really ugly that I'm not even going to say the wording that I used (laughs) about the blank book that I didn't want to read, but he very kindly said, if you would read it, I think you might like it. I've looked through it on the plane and I think you might would really benefit from reading it, so... um, I did, and yeah. in the next couple of days, I read straight through that book and mm. just cried and wept, and all of a sudden, the compassion came back into my heart. Oh. For um, And then an anger came into my heart because I was like, why did nobody tell me this? Why didn't I... Why didn't I understand this? Mm. I, I would have. This would have been so different. And the, but the compassion for my child and where he had been and the things he did and the the hurts that he had that were so deep. Yeah. Some of which I kind of laughed at things that he did because I thought they were kind of funny, but I didn't realize they were such deep rooted survival skills yeah. that were harmful. Mm. Um, but you know, a child that can get 
anything out of a vending machine by sticking his arm up and shaking it the right way in order I realized, you know, that was how he got his food. He yeah. That was a survival skill that I was kind of making, not making fun of, but laughing about because it was such a unique skill. And um, Unique. You know, it's a unique skill. Yeah. But, um, but that book gave me an understanding of... Um, where my expectations had been so off. I was rescuing a child. I, that's what my goal was. I, there was children that needed homes. I knew that. I had room in our house for another few children, so we took them in not knowing what we needed to know. You know, if I'm the type of person that if I was pregnant and giving birth to a Down syndrome child, mm. I would, by the time that child was born, I would have had read every book. I would have spoken to doctors. I would have researched families. Yeah. I would have known what to do. I would have had things in place of what to do to help this child um, yeah. have the best life possible. And with our adopted kids, I didn't do that. I just thought there was a need, so let's just bring them in here, throw them into the group, and we'll parent them the same way we have our biological children. Oh, no. And, um, you know, they turned out pretty good, so we're, <laughs> we're good to go. Oh. And you know, that didn't work. That that real quick, we realized that didn't work. I remember feeling so frustrated because my baby was just not doing what the book said or the pediatrician said or, or the nursery worker said. They were dealing with issues that nobody was talking about yet. Reactive attachment disorder, sensory processing disorder, social anxiety disorder, things I'd never heard of. Dan and Terry taught me how to really look beyond the behavior of my child to the needs of their heart. Each one had habits and behaviors I did not understand. I was like, you know, why? You are in a safe home now with a family who loves you. Why are you acting all crazy like this? It made me nuts, some of the things they were doing. But I started really pulling back, not like disengaging with a child or anything, but just stopping to pray in the middle of whatever was happening. Even out loud, I would pray. Sometimes I would stop in the middle of a tantrum. There would be yelling and screaming, kicking, biting, throwing of toys, thrashing on the floor. And if you think that sounds bad, you should have seen my kids. I would whisper a prayer in the middle of all of that. Help me, Lord. Help me see what they need. Give me wisdom here. Please bring healing and peace through me. And the Holy Spirit started showing me, you know, this child had nobody she could trust before. So it's no wonder they're having trouble trusting you. I started seeing with spiritual eyes that most of the time they were acting out of fear or sadness. I realized so many of these episodes and tantrums that were happening were really more about what's going on inside the child than what's going on between me and the child. And way more than just behavior modification, they needed deep soul healing. But what I also have learned since this is that um, I was not parenting real healthy. I was Hmm. parenting... And I don't say this against my own parents because I was very loved and brought up in a home that was loved, but I was parenting more out of correction and mm. what could make me do what I needed, what they wanted me to do. To, Even to, your biological to, kids. Yes, uh-huh. that's how they were parented. Uh-huh. Um, and they had a root system of, of, of nurturing and love, and you know they didn't have that open wound in their heart. So they were able to withstand that parenting um, that we mm. did at that point. But... Um, what I realized was through this, through reading this book and understanding where my child had come from was he didn't understand trust and 
what it meant for someone to take care of you or yeah. to give you care. And he had literally survived on survival skills. Mm. And, and, you know, my, I have two that came from China from an orphanage. And, you know, their survival skills or their skills, as I recognize, you know, I have one child that, um, you know, lived in a, in a setting with a lot of bugs um, mm. and had sores. And bugs would be, you know, on her body a lot. Mm. And when she came home, um, if there was a bug anywhere around, I would have to, it, like a fly in the car, I would have oh. to stop the car and wow. get that bug out and then calm her down because it put her on such a heightened alert that she could not deal with that. And it, it and when, wow. because then I understood why that was, why it this was that way. It wasn't from. annoying to me. Yeah because I got where it came from. Uh So the behaviors that had been annoying before and so frustrating Mm. that I was punishing or doing things to try to make stop, Mm -hmm. I totally saw them in a different way. So I I learned to see behavior as the expression of a need. So my children's behavior, so if I can be in my right mind and rested and all that Mm -hmm. and see a behavior, then I can... um, figure out what is the need what are they and this is from little children to teenagers you know and it's beyond parenting it's like I apply it to even friendships you know there's a friend of mine who locks the door every time you know we have a luncheon at her house every few weeks when we gather at this friend's house you know one by one we'll be walking in with food and trays and drinks and she locks the door every time someone walks in and this used to drive me crazy, but then I heard her story. She was raped when she was 12. Mm-hmm. A guy came to her door and said he was a policeman. So once I had that understanding, I was like, of course you're going to lock your door. It's a whole different lens, and that's the children. That's exactly the, the lens of where they've been. Right. You know, the sad thing is is so many of the kids, when they come from international or into the foster care system, and then they come into our homes, we don't know the past. Right. We, we don't know what they have lived through right. and what they have experienced and what mm-hmm. they have seen, what abuses they have, um, you know, mm-hmm. taken in, have, have happened to them. Right. And um, I think if we, and, and only will that start coming out. It's like they come into our home with this invisible backpack that they're wearing mm-hmm. that is filled with so much hurt and abuse and shame and rejection that... Um, that they're wearing and they they can't you know they they don't unpack that backpack Mm -hmm. until they have developed a trust and Mm -hmm. an attachment to the caregivers that they get through trust Mm -hmm. and they've connected with these people and that takes you know uh, dr purvis would say you know you've got to go back to where that train got off the track Uh and to bring that child to healing so you and don't just, there's a phrase for that that you and Dan use. Oh, it's the... Um, Recapitulation. Yeah. Um, oh, Dan says it so much better. The recovery of function. Recovery of function. Recapitulates development of function. Yeah. So you've got to go back to where that child yeah. got hurt and got, you know, off the track of development. And, okay. and that's kind of where another thing that, you know, I've learned is that attachment is not just a one-time thing, mm-hmm. especially with children that come from hard places because Mm -hmm. 
they, you know, they, they put a little trust, you know, when they start beginning to trust, they've got this trust, but then when they get to the next stage of development, mm. um, many times it's, you know, those starts with those adolescent years, and then they start realizing, you know, and they're little, you can tell them you were adopted, and they, they kind of don't really get the whole story, but as they get older, they realize that they don't, they do have other parents somewhere mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. you know, for whatever reason, they're not with. And like you said, what do they look like? All those questions. What do questions they look like? Do I look up? like them? Do yeah. I like to read because they And was it they you, did? Terry, when I worked at Mustard Seed Preschool? It seems like you were there one time. Did you send somebody to Mustard Seed? No, I had a grandson that was there. Grandson. Yes. Maybe in New Hope, where they had collages of from the time you were born up through four or five years old. And you cut pictures out of magazines for this collage that looked like it might have been Michael. Am I remembering this right? You know, I'm trying to And I thought, this is so brilliant. Because instead of just sending my daughter to school with a blank canvas, oh, I started what? cutting out pictures. I know what you're talking about because some of the kids that, I've, that I have, I don't have, yes. you know, baby and infant pictures. We and I remember one time um, one of mine had to take a baby picture to school yes. because they were studying. And I'm like, after I got so angry over the even project with, yes. you know, the teacher, but I thought... I don't have a picture of you as a baby. So um, she had a clef, and this was um, my sweet little daughter. And I said, you know, let's get on the Internet. And we typed in Asian girls with clef, clef lip and palette. And we looked on there, and we, you know, pulled a bunch of pictures up. And I said, okay, your cleft is on the, you know, the left side. So we looked for little girls that had a cleft on the left side. And um, then she went through there. I said, let's look and see which one do you think you look the most like or do you think you looked like when you were that age? So and it sweet. ended up being a great exercise. Nice. But we, we went through there and we found a child. And you know what? I printed that picture out and um, oh. laminated it. And she took that to school and that was her baby picture. That's awesome. You know, it worked for the situation. But, you Such know, the hole great. in her heart was, right. was, was certainly at that point kind of opened up again. Yeah. Um, because that... She really didn't, it really wasn't her. And even though she maybe knew. some people thought that that was her and she yeah. could say it was her, yeah. but in her heart, um, it wasn't. And right. she knew that. Terry, tell us about the conferences that you guys do because there are all kinds of tips like this. And, you know, you, you have a great way of encapsulating all the connected child material, you and Dan, together. And now there's a whole team, right? There's a whole team, right. Awesome. Um, so when I read the book, it was written by Dr. Karen Purvis and Dr. David Cross called The Connected Child. Um, I wanted to figure out how to get that in an IV form and put it in everybody's arm before they <laughs> adopt it and, you know, and just feed it into them so they'd have all that information. IV, I so, that's it. Like an IV, I thought that's where I could do it. But, you know, I thought, well, I'll just start giving the book to everybody. But, you know, people have to, to some extent, they have to want that information and people right. are at different there are different stages when they're adopting. You know, some people do want to believe that they're they don't have to deal with the past anymore. They're just going to take that child and right. start afresh. And, and hearing it from you, hearing yeah, it from another person who's experienced it, takes it to a whole new level. Yeah, and they're afraid. They're you know they're afraid of of, right. of dealing with that and of of a, a relationship with the birth parent maybe in the future, which. Right. I've come to learn is is such a healthy situation mm-hmm. because right. you know when they get to the age where they can figure out things for themselves and put the pieces of their life's puzzle it takes together, it off of you. It, it does. It takes it off of me, and and they can figure it out, and they're stronger because of it. They are That's stronger great. because they're able to put some pieces together. They're not all, all really 
nice pieces. They, mm -hmm. They're not all real pretty pieces, but a lot of them are, and a lot of them fit. Mm -hmm. And even as a parent, to some extent, you, you know, if you get to meet that birth family also, you gain a new understanding of your child because you mm -hmm. do see kind of maybe where they got a, you know, a, a, a look or um, Little tick some or kind of mannerism or something yeah. that they do. And, and so you don't, wow. you don't have to see it as losing your child to this person. You can see it as gaining more of your child. Right. You know, not every relationship, um, you know, is a, is a happy reunion. Right. But the child many times does need to walk through that. For a while, I took it a little personally when my daughter would say things like, you're not my mother. It was hard to not take that personally. I would get defensive. Well, I'm the one who does this and this for you. And then one day it hit me. It was like, why am I arguing with a six-year-old? One day, my Davy was stuffing things in her little pink Winnie the Pooh backpack. There was like a t-shirt, a pair of PJs, a couple of stuffed animals, a juice box. She was running away to India. She was on a mission to find her mother, her real mother. She had talked about running away before, but this time I didn't get alarmed. I didn't take it personally. I just quietly got my bag down from the attic and I started packing. And she asked me, where are you going? And I told her if she was going to find her mother, I wanted to go and, and thank her. I wanted to meet her too. But there would be airports in different countries with signs in different languages that, um, you know, you might have trouble reading, Davy. And I, I want to be there to help make sure that the trains and the planes and the rickshaw all get you to the right village, to the right place. Well, we decided it would be smart to pack a snack for our journey, and we made some peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. We cut up some apples. We packed some more juice boxes. And then we got about as far as the end of our driveway to the mailbox, and she said she was hungry. So we pulled out our lunch and had a little picnic in our front yard. Then she suddenly felt like she didn't need to run away anymore. So we went back inside the house, and we took a nap. Back to where we're talking about attachment being developmental, um, and Dr. Mandy Howard talks about that at the conference, is... Um, you know, at every stage, like, you know, so the teenage, they start wondering who they look like and what the situation is. They understand how babies get here now. So they're figuring out there's, there's more to this whole thing than just, you know, these people couldn't take care Came of me. On a so plane. Here, right. So they, don't, they, they get, there's yeah. a lot more dynamics that go on right. in the teenage years. They're interested in all those dynamics, of course. So they right. start questioning. And then, you know, another stage many times is when they, you know, they get married and they have that first, they have child. Mm. And that opens up many times a whole nother situation mm. of, of um, huh, I wonder if my mother felt, you know, what oh. did she feel during these times? You know, wow. you, so there's, a, there's this attachment being developmental mm. is really a big thing that we've got to mm -hmm. understand. It's not like, you know, just a one-time quick thing. Okay, we're attached. Click event. that off. You know, check yeah. that off the list now. But right. it's it's a it's a process, yeah, and um, and it's a hard process, and it's a painful process because mm -hmm. there are hurts. There's hurts. I hurt for my kids for what they mm -hmm. missed. I hurt that some of them there are no answers. Some mm -hmm. of them there there's not a way they're ever going to be able to answer those questions with their birth parents um, mm. because they're not going to be able to find them or those you know there's no documentation that will ever possibly right. lead them there. So I hurt for them. I really. 
Um, and then there's others that do have the documentation, and they will be able if they choose. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and some kids are very interested in that, and other kids of mine are not at all interested. Right. But at different stages, they all mention it. And you know, on their birthdays, I always wonder mm-hmm. where those birth. I wonder where those where those birth families are, and what they are they remembering that today was his birthday? Oh, um, are they wow. thinking about and wondering is he okay? So if I'm thinking about it. They're thinking about it. And people tell me all the time, oh, my child's not even interested. They're just happy to be right here. Well, that is a great statement, and it's a happy statement. But you know what? It's not a true statement because I have never, never talked to an adoptive child that is not from time to time thinking and wondering if their parents, their birth parents are alive, if they think about them, what they look like. You know, it's what is human. the real story? It's, it's a human natural. thing. That's how we are created. Right. And when that connection is broken, mm-hmm. however it happens, good or bad, and, you know, people say, oh, well, you know, they're out of that orphanage now or they're out of that abusive situation, um, you know, so now we can go on. Well, you know, the thing is they're out of there, but when you take them from an orphanage and bring them over, you know, to another country, you have taken them away from everything yeah. that is familiar with them. And to, the orphanage is still in them. Even though it was a horrible situation, it wasn't how God intended for a child to live in an institution. Right. It is still what they knew. Right. And it is part of them. And it is who, it's where they developed. And it is how they learned to survive. And if you don't understand that situation, you know, if you've never seen the child get a bowl of porridge and run to a corner and mm. put her face in a corner and eat it as fast as you can. Mm. Or then hoard you food under her bed. Or hoard food under their bed. And you've got these kids that you've brought home now and you put dinner on the table or they smell dinner cooking and they just go crazy and I'm hungry, I want something to eat and they become demanding. It's because many times they smelt food and they never got any. The stronger survived. They didn't get it. That bowl got taken away from them, and they weren't fed. These kids know hunger, Mm. and that is something that they will never get completely past because Mm -mm. they experienced it. And when you experience something, it is in your brain, and it will never completely go away. And, Terry, wouldn't you say that if they're not talking about it, that's even more reason to talk about it? Well, I think you you have to to talk talk about it it when they're ready to talk, when they ask questions. And I usually don't answer more than they ask. I try mm-hmm. at different levels, to, you know, different stages to give them different levels of information of what I know. Or if I don't know, I've learned to say, you know, what do you think? Let's think about it. Here's what we know. So let's try to think about maybe what it would have been like. Mm-hmm. But I will say, their body remembers things oh, that yeah. their brain so cannot even, they don't have words for. Yeah. So don't think that that body and the triggers that they have when they're doing something and you're going, what on earth is triggering that? Yeah. Such as the food cooking. Oh, and yeah. your child wants food right then. Okay, so you, you know you're going to serve food in 30 minutes, that you're fixed this wonderful, you know, dinner for them. Mm-hmm. They don't know that. And when they might need you to hand them a healthy snack, carrots. an apple sliced yeah. up or carrots or some kind of snack or a granola bar of some kind that you say, yeah. you know, you can have, you can either um, put this at your plate or I can hold it here for when we have dinner. But they've got to know they've got that food. Maybe write their name on their plate. Right. You know, they to show this is your, I remember Davy being so excited that she had a place at the table every night she sat at the same table in the corner of the table and she was thrilled about just the littlest things like that and her name was on her cup 
and on her plate, and she yeah. thrilled. And she knew that was hers yeah. because nobody was going to take it. In an orphanage it. setting and in the foster care setting, they don't have things that are theirs. No, even the dress that the she wore in the picture mm -hmm. was about three sizes too big, and I knew right away they passed that dress to every kid in that orphanage it's their just for made. the picture. Right, exactly. Yeah. So she doesn't understand what, you know, so they're they're very territorial sometimes and they don't Absolutely. mean it bad. They're just, they're right. trying to figure things out. Right, and when we tried to get her to give away clothes that she'd outgrown because she was such a little peanut when she came. You know, mm -hmm. she was in a two teens. She was so she was tiny. Five. Yeah. So she was grown pretty fast when she got some good water and nutrition in her and jumping on the trampoline, try to get her to give away clothes that she had. She would just throw the biggest fit. And mm -hmm. I finally realized, you know, she didn't have any clothes. It doesn't matter that she's got this whole bag of clothes that were handed down to her now. She can't see that. She can only see everything in this closet is mine, and that's all that's mine. And now you're telling me to give this away. It just broke her heart. I'm it so was not hard. an angry cry. It was like, oh. It's a it fearful cry. It was fear-based. and fear. Yeah, mm -hmm. that was it. Yeah, it was a fear -based. So having this understanding changed everything, every conversation in my house. Yeah. So I'm so I glad mean, that you're out a, there. It's a paradigm shift. Don't you love that picture that Terry described of having an IV directly injecting these truths into our veins? Man, that's what I need sometimes, I feel like. But this conference is a must. This conference is like that. If, if you have any contact with any children anywhere, ever, go. There are simulcasts, 400 of them, happening all over the place. And as Terry said, even she gets something out of it every single time. The same goes for me. I cannot wait to sit at the Coley seat again and take all this information in again. It's a way of living out the gospel in such a profound way. Like I said, it's going to change the way you relate to everybody in your path. I cannot recommend it enough. No matter what your age, no matter what you do, Everyone around you can benefit from taking in this material. I will link, of course, to the resources that Terry mentioned, the Connected Child book and the Created to Connect workbook, which can be used in a Sunday school setting like we did. So good, so good. And it's true what Terry's saying. Attachment is not a one-time event. It's a repetitive, consistent action over a long period of time. You earn the trust of the child only with time. And in order to help our kids process their own stories, you know, we have to be working on processing our own stories. If you'd like help with that, listen to Chip Dodd's interview. That's episode 28. He heads up a counseling center called Sage Hill here in Nashville, and they can point you in the right direction to some resources or counselors even in your area. Tune in next week for part two of my interview with Terry Coley, whose charity of choice is, of course, Show Hope. Go check out their website, showhope.org, which truly is gorgeous. And sign up for one of those 400 simulcast locations for this Empowered to Connect conference. And do make a donation to Show Hope. And sign up for their prayer alerts, too, and their newsletter. Just another way for you to live out love. Till next time, bye, love. My thanks to the heroic, handsome, most talented rock star, keyboard player, producer, engineer extraordinaire, and my best friend, Blair Masters, for setting it all to music. And thank you for joining us. Come on back 
and we'll talk more about how you can find your happy by living life more connected. I'm so happy that I have supporters who have helped me get get to my goal. Behind every success story is his mother. Mm. That's what he said. I mean. Oh, did that make you cry? It did. It just, I thought, you know, you. Because you at one point he didn't want to see me as his mother. I wasn't his mother. You know, don't oh. say you're my mother. You're not my mother. I said, I may not be your birth mother, but I'm the one who walks alongside you all the time. And I'm the one that's fighting for you and will always fight for you. It's okay for you to have another woman that you call mother. It's okay. I'd like to meet her someday because she must be pretty cool. Because you're a cool kid. So sweet.